started. A um, couple things coming up. Uh, homework two is due next time. Uh, that is the homework that co for the next exam that covers chapters five, six, and then chapters 15 and 16. So we started on 15 last time, and today I will go through the rest of the material on the sun, which is chapters which is finishing 15 and then doing chapter 16. So we will get through all of that material uh, today. So you'll be unless something really strange comes up, uh, we should be good getting through that. So you'll be set for the homework next time. Uh, like the last time, I will give you an answer key for it. Uh, since I'm not going to see you again till the 11th, since we don't have class next Tuesday because that's the fall break. So I will give an answer key, but I will give you a little bit more time that if anybody's running late this time, that if you need to, uh, to submit it late, that's fine. I won't release the answer key probably, uh, probably till the beginning of the week. Probably something like Monday morning or something to give, give you a couple extra days. That way, if anybody is running a little bit late and needs to submit it late for uh, partial credit, you still have that, have that option. And then coming up the fall, next week, again, our only day we meet will be uh, the 11th. I'm looking for your solar observation submitted by then. At least one more new successful observation by that point. Um, preferably, if you've only got two, you're running behind. But you can still get full credit for that portion, but you're running behind if you've only got two at that point. Hopefully you're getting up to the point where you've got four or five even now, and then uh, by the time we get to the end of November and the projects due, again, I'm looking for 10. And then the exam will cover chapters 5, 6, and 15 and 16. Same style and structure as the previous exam. So same rough number of multiple choice, same types of essay, and similar questions there that we'll have. So it'll be similar, just again covering the new material on these uh, four chapters that we're going over. And then we will be uh, starting next time, if we don't, if we, unless we finish early today, I'll be starting on the sections on stars, the next set of chapters, which is 17, 18, and 19. So that's kind of our next set that we're covering over the next two weeks. Questions? All right. Well, picture of the day for today then. Pretty rainbow there, but we're actually looking at some of the other stuff here as well. And if you can see, not only do we have the re regular rainbow here, nice and bright there, um, caused by water droplets. So we see a rainbow because sunlight. In this case, in any case for a rainbow, the sunlight is always behind you. So the photographer standing here taking the picture, the sun would have been behind them and causing the, uh, causing the rainbow. And what it is is that when the water, or, sorry, the sunlight strikes the water droplets, it gets bent. Remember how when light goes through a prism, it gets bent and it gets split into the colors of the rainbow? Well, all the water droplets act like little prisms and form the same kind of thing and form a large rainbow here. Now that can be explained by light being particles, photons. They go through there and they get bent and, they and as they move they spread out into their component colors. What, the other thing that was imaged here is if you see there's actually a second and a third and a fourth, there's several here in various patterns and that's what they call a supernumerary rainbow. And that is, and actually if you look at the actual image, it's not just the three or four that you can see there, but it actually goes off and on and on. Those are caused by interference 
of the light wave. So those are caused by light being a wave. So essentially in one image you can see some evidence of light being a particle and a wave at the same time. When the water droplets are all really close to the same size, the light can interfere with each other. Remember you can have interference, I think we talked about this in terms of like a wave pool, that you can get waves combining together and get really powerful waves, or a big wave and a, and a negative wave, a trough, trust and a trough combining together and giving you nothing. You can do the same thing with light. Light waves can combine together and give you unusual brightness, and just beyond it you'll get fainter areas. So you'll have brighter and fainter and brighter and fainter areas alternating because of the interference of the light waves. So in a way when we see something like this it really tells us a couple things. First of all it's telling us that the rain particles were all very close to the same size. Otherwise you wouldn't be able to see the interference. You need all those rain droplets almost the same size. And you also are showing something about the wave nature of light, that light has to behave like a wave. There's no way to explain these kind of, uh, what they said, supernumerary uh, rainbows as being anything else. They have to show that light is a wave. All right, questions? Okay, we will head back to the sun then. All right, so sun is... Chapter 15 and uh, not the beginning, we want to start about here. I talked about the different parts of the sun um, last time. We went through the different layers. We talked briefly about the inner layers, which we'll come back to in chapter 16 in a little bit. And we started talking about the outer layers, the photosphere, the surface that we see, the chromosphere, and then the corona. And then beyond that, not actually a part of the sun, but it's actually material leaving the sun is what we call the solar wind. So the sun is actually constantly losing particles at an incredible rate. One and a half million tons of material leaving the sun every single second for five billion years. That's a lot of material. You know, the earth couldn't do that. The earth couldn't lose that many tons of material for billions of years. It wouldn't be here anymore. For the sun it doesn't even notice that. That is such a small amount of material, even averaged over five, even doing that for five billion years, that doesn't make any kind of dent in the mass of the sun. But it is material that is leaving the sun and heading out into space. So even though it loses that material, what it does is it affects us here on Earth when those particles strike the atmosphere. So they're sent out in all directions. Most of them come nowhere near Earth. Right? Earth is somewhere out in one direction. A lot of these particles go off this way or that way or that way or that way and they just head off into space. Never to interact with anything else again. However, the few of them that come to Earth do do some interesting things. And you can get things like the aurora here. So the aurora is caused by those particles leaving the sun. As those particles stream towards Earth, they follow along our magnetic field lines. So our Earth has a magnetic field around it. And as they come there, they follow along that. And it's kind of nice because it buffers the Earth from the intensity of the solar wind. We don't get its full intensity. It pushes material off. It pushes it away. But some of it does stream down and strike the Earth where the magnetic field lines come in, which would be at the poles. 
North Magnetic Pole and South Magnetic Pole. So we talk about the Aurora Borealis, the Northern Lights, or the Aurora Australis, the Southern Lights. They all occur very close to the poles, the magnetic poles of the Earth. That's the point where those particles can actually strike the Earth's atmosphere. And they strike it at a very high energy. And they excite oxygen atoms. There's oxygen atoms, and we're talking not low down. This is not something that occurs down where we are. This occurs 100 miles up above the surface. So it strikes it very low density material there, strikes it, hits those particles, and remember what happens. It excites the electrons. They jump up in energy levels, just like anything else. And then they jump back down, and when they do, they give off specific light. And in this case, if you remember, we looked at hydrogen. In one of the, the lab last time, I had you sketch hydrogen. Well, hydrogen gave off red light and then some stuff out in the blue. Oxygen gives off some very strong green color. So you get a very distinct green color when you look at oxygen atoms. There's also some other colors you can get depending on the strength of the aurora. You can sometimes get some reds and purples. Uh, some of that is also due to oxygen. Some of it is due to nitrogen atoms. But it's all just due to the atoms in the Earth's atmosphere that are then glowing. So this is like a shimmering curtain of light that occurs in the sky. It doesn't block out anything. It's not a cloud. So if there were stars behind these, you could actually see stars through the aurora. It's just that the light, the, the sky is getting brighter in those areas. It's not blocking anything out. Now, it's going to make something faint, hard to see. But if you had a bright enough object, a bright star, which often is visible, you could see it right through the aurora. The aurora does not block out anything. So that's caused by the solar wind. And although we don't go through a lot on the planets here, you'd see this on any planet. It's not something that's special to us. Any planet, as long as it has two things. It has a magnetic field, and it has an atmosphere. So of the planets close to the sun, that leaves only Earth to get this. But we see aurora on Jupiter. We see aurora on Saturn, Uranus, Neptune. All of the outer planets have magnetic fields and have, will have aurora as well. Now, of course, in that case, you're looking down on them from above. But you can still see where those particles are striking the, uh, the atmospheres of those planets. But for the other planets like ours, Mars, Venus, do have atmospheres, but they don't have any magnetic fields. And Mercury, while it has a little magnetic field, has no atmosphere. So no place else. Uh, the only surface that we know of that you can walk on where you can see the aurora would be the Earth. All right, so finishing up this first section, um, we were looking at, we talked about the different layers of the sun and that there's no solid surface. There is no place that will ever be able to land on the sun, ignoring the high temperatures. There is just simply no solid surface at temperatures of thousands of degrees. Everything is a gas. Doesn't matter whether it is oxygen or nitrogen or carbon or silicon or iron, at those high temperatures, everything is completely vaporized. We can't view the inner layers directly. But we're going to look at a little bit about how we try to understand those uh, coming up in the next chapter a little bit and what goes on in those layers. But the outer layers we can see. When we block out the photosphere, which is what we see as the surface of the sun, then the outer layers are visible. So we could see the corona. We could see the chromosphere during those times. And then finally, we just looked at particles from the sun, what we call the solar wind, interact with the Earth's atmosphere, giving us the aurora. All right.
So questions on that one as we finished up? All right. Well, then we are going to jump in to look at some of the solar activity, which is the next section. Um, and we're going to start by talking about sunspots. Now Galileo saw sunspots. He saw things like this when he looked at the sun with his small telescope. So he would see blotches on the sun. Remember that told him that the sun was imperfect. But now we learn a lot more about the sunspots. We know a little more about what they are. And they are simply dark and cooler regions on the surface of the sun. So overall the temperature is about 6,000 degrees, 5,800 if you want a precise number. These are about 2,000 degrees cooler. Still 4,000 degrees. You know, it's not a, not a, not a place we, anything we have would be able to survive. But they're significantly cooler. And that makes them look darker against the brighter surface of the hotter sun. They're still really bright. If you could scoop out a sunspot somehow, you've come up with some device that can take a sunspot and put it out there in space, it would glow. Be a reddish orange color because it's a lot cooler than the sun. It wouldn't be the yellowish white. But you, it would glow very brightly and brighter than the full moon. I mean, it would be brighter than anything else other than the sun itself in the sky. So even though they look dark, they look dark because they're relative to something much, much brighter. In reality, they are very bright themselves. They are emitting a lot of energy, just a lot less than what the sun itself is emitting. They can last times varying for days or even hours, just a very short time. They can come and go. Or they can last for several months. Some of the large sunspot structures can last for a very long time. Um, I did mention that Galileo saw them, but there also are some reports that some sunspots might have been seen thousands of years ago. How could you see a sunspot without a telescope? Well, you can't look at the sun, but there are some sunspots that are so large that they're visible with the naked eye. Yeah? How can there be spots, though, if the sun is just gases? It's a darker area, a cooler region of the gas. So this, so ga this area of gas themselves? Yeah, they're all gas. Everything is so hot there, and even though those are still 4,000 degrees, right? Iron would be vaporized, lead would be vaporized so at those temperatures. Just not like physical, it's a darker area, it's a darker air, it's a cooler area of the sun. There's something and we'll talk about in a little bit as to why they're cooler. But just imagine it right now as it's just a cooler area of the sun. So, so just like you, yeah. Cooler gases. Cooler gases, because they're cooler, makes them appear darker against the sun. Again, if you took that and put it out into space, it would be bright. It wouldn't look dark. Good. Yeah? Well, there's a reason that they're cooled off. There is actually something going on physically in the sun that is causing them to be cooler. So yes, the other heat around them, but there is something here that is inhibiting. There is something going on with the sun's magnetic field that inhibits the heat transfer and makes them cooler. That's why they, that is why they don't last forever. Right? So over time, the sun eventually clears up that magnetic field issue and they become, they merge to the right temperature. So in all, they will, but there, there is something there. Because you're right, if it was just a cotter temp, wouldn't it all even out over time? But there's something else going on there with the sun's magnetic field that is kind of 
providing a buffer around it that's keeping it at a different temperature. And I was saying, you can see some large. There are some that are big enough to see with the naked eye. Don't stare at the sun. But people would see them maybe at sunrise or sunset. You'd see this dark splotch. You could see a dark splotch on the sun. Times when you can look at the sun. Right? You can actually watch the sun at sunrise or sunset. You could actually see some of the largest ones. And there are reports going back thousands of years ago that people did see them. But the first official seeing was uh, Galileo's with his telescope. Now, we see sunspots. They come and go. They, they last maybe a month or a, little, or a couple months at the longest. Uh, they don't last forever. So the sunspots that we saw back in January are gone. Right? Now into October, many months later, we don't see them. Sunspots that we saw in June are gone. Now there's new sunspots. Anything that we see on the sun right now, we look at the sun again in January, those same, same sunspots will be gone. There'll be new ones that'll appear. They come and go just like you know, weather patterns on the Earth. Right? There's always some kind of storm, some kind of low pressure system that is causing the weather. But then there's always one around, but it's not the same one. They come, they form for whatever reason, then they go. So the sunspots are doing the same kind of thing, but they do come with a pattern. And we actually see here is counts of sunspots going back to the mid-1980s here. And what is done is that there are uh, observatories that are set just to observe the sun. And daily, they count how many spots are on the sun. So this is what they call the sunspot number, which is related. It's not exactly just the number of sunspots, but it's a way to count the number of sunspots to determine how many there are. And they come and go with a pattern with a period of about 11 years. So back here in the late 1980s, there were hardly any sunspots on the sun. You could pick a day, go look. You might see one or two spots. You might see almost nothing or nothing on the sun at that time. Then back just a couple years later, 1990, 1991, there were a ton of sunspots. This is just counting the sunspots. Up here, all of a sudden, we had lots and lots of sunspots for a few years. You couldn't, couldn't look at the sun without seeing some sunspots there. And then it drops down again. So here, maybe around 1985, 86, and about 11 years later, by 97, you were back down to a minimum again. And you had hardly any sunspots. Shot up again around 2001, 2002, and then dropped down. And then it peaked again around 2014, 2015, and right now, 2018, 16, 17, 18, we're right about in here and the projections show it dropping down and that we're seeing fewer and fewer sunspots right now and in another couple of years we'll see hardly any. So it, it's a pretty regular cycle. It's not perfect. I told you it's 11 years. But if you go and look back through the historical records since we've been counting sunspots, Sometimes it's 10 years, sometimes it's 12 years, sometimes it's 9, sometimes it's 14 or 15. In fact, this last sunspot cycle was unusual because we had a peak here, which was about 2001, 2002, which meant that we should have had a peak at 2012 or 2013, and it didn't. The peak was actually shifted off in almost 2015 before we hit any kind of peak. So it's not perfect. I'm trying to get across. It's not that it's every 11 years you're going to get a perfect cycle. There is some variation. And there's also variation in the intensity. 
This one, back here in the 90s, really intense. Lots of sunspot activity at the peak. This last one, a couple years ago, didn't get near as close. This was peaking up close to 300. This was more hitting in the 150 range. It was about half as strong. So far fewer, you can have various, you can variations in how wide, the, how long that period is. You can also have variations in how intense it is. And we're going to look at some of that coming up over this, uh, these next two sections. The sunspot cycle is related to the magnetic properties of the sun. So the sun has a magnetic field like the earth. And in reality, it's actually a 22 year cycle. What happens at the end of the cycle is the sun's magnetic field flips upside down. What was the north magnetic pole becomes the south magnetic pole, and the south magnetic pole becomes the north magnetic pole. That's the magnetic poles. That's not the rotation. The sun doesn't flip upside down. What was the north rotational pole is still the north pole. So the sun stays the same, but the magnetic field flips. That happens on Earth too, not with the 22-year cycle. It's a much longer period, but the Earth's magnetic field flips. There are times where you know, your compass would point south instead of north because the magnetic field lines were going the other direction. On the Earth, it's more like tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of years. But we can see it when we look at rocks in the Earth's surface as rocks are formed out of volcanic activity. At some stretches, you have them aligned one direction. Right? Magnetic materials will align with the poles. So one time, they'll align one direction. 50,000 years later, they're aligned the other direction. So the fact that it flips isn't something unusual or something that doesn't happen elsewhere. But it happens on the sun in a regular pattern, much more so than it does on the Earth. And that's what I mean by reversing polarity that you switch the north and the south magnetic poles. So what was north is now south. What was south is now north in terms of magnetic fields. So how do we know? I told you that, there, there, that the sunspot cycle is related to the magnetic properties. How do we know that sunspots are magnetic? Well, one thing we use is what is called the Zeeman effect. And what happens is that spectral lines, right? we just looked at spectral lines last time. I had you look at some of those. Uh, and you sketched a bunch of them. Uh, but spectral lines, in the presence of a strong magnetic field, can split. So it looks like one spectral line can actually split into three. With no magnetic field, they're all collapsed into one, and you can't tell the difference. If you get a little bit of a magnetic field, they start to spread apart. If you get a little more magnetic field, they'll spread apart more and more. In a very strong magnetic field, they'll actually be visible. And this is showing taking a spectrum going across a sunspot. So this is the slit that you're taking the lights. You're taking the spectrum from right along this area. Right in here, you're going through the sunspot. If you see the spectral line, here it's just fine. One spectral line. All of a sudden in this, it widens. It splits into three. There's one that goes down the middle and one that roughly goes on either side. They're separated where the magnetic field is really strong. And that's at the location of the sunspot. So we can see that. That's one way we can see them. Zeeman effect is one very good way. The other way that we can see them is through some magnetic loops. And we actually take images of the sun like this, and you can watch the material on the sun. And the sun isn't a static object. It's not like the Earth, where it's just you know, solid surface. It's gaseous. It's turbulent. So everything is constantly in motion. Those gases are moving, and they move along the magnetic field lines. So they actually highlight the magnetic field lines. 
If you've ever seen the experiment they do with the bar magnet and iron filings, they sometimes do. They'll put the bar magnet down there, put a sheet over it, put some iron, and you'll see that they'll trace along the magnetic field lines, which are invisible. Right? The Earth's magnetic field's passing through us right now. We don't know the difference. Uh, but, but they do highlight it. Well, the, the material from the sun also highlights it. So you get all these kinds of loops that are associated with the sun's magnetic field. The plasma from the sun is following those magnetic field lines and we can see them. And in fact, this would be a sunspot region, a very active region. It's taken in uh, looking up in the uh, chromosphere and it's taken in different wavelengths of light so they don't look dark like they do in visible light. But it should actually be a sunspot region and sunspots are actually connected by the loops, those loops. So two ways that we can see. The Zeeman effect tells us something and the magnetic loops that we see. Both of those give us pretty good evidence that there is, uh, that there are magnetic fields that are associated with these, that the sunspots are magnetic phenomena. And that means that we think their patterns, their properties are all, mag- all due to the magnetic field of the sun. And that leads us to the magnetic cycle of the sun or the changes in the patterns that we see. If we graph sunspots, right, I showed you last time just this little bit, I showed you the last couple here, but well, we've been observing sunspots for many years. Been able to count the number of them. This is just, this is two graphs of the sunspot number versus time. Bottom one is like what I showed you before. The top one doesn't count the number of sunspots, but it plots the sunspots by where they show up on the sun. So up here is the pole. So these would be at the, they'd be showing up at the pole. There they'd be middle, they'd be showing at the equator. Bottom, they'd be showing at the south pole. And there is a kind of a pattern to the number of spots. Again, the magnetic cycle is 22 years long. The number of sunspots changes with an 11-year cycle. So, and that's pretty, and you can see that going back that far, I mean, it's, it averages out pretty well. Again, it might be 10 years, it might be 12 years, but overall it averages out to about 11 years. So, We have that, but the location changes. This is what we call the Maunder butterfly diagram. If you kind of turn your head sideways, you can see all the little butterflies, you know, lined up here with two wings, a bunch of little butterflies heading off in one direction. Uh, But it shows that at the beginning of the cycle, the sunspots tend to form higher up on the sun, closer to the poles. Not really close to the poles, but much closer to the poles. By the end of the cycle, at the end of that 11-year cycle, they're down close to the equator. Then there's hardly any sunspots. When the new ones appear, they appear higher. And slowly, over the course of, the, of that time, they will appear lower and lower and lower. So there's a distinct pattern. It's not that the sunspots are random. They don't appear just any place on the sun. They have a very specific pattern to where they occur. The number, again, changes as well. And again, I mentioned that the polarity, north and south. So sunspots are magnetic. They have north and south poles. And they will flip at the end of each cycle as well. Again, not an individual sunspot. They come and go. And all this happens when there's that time when there's hardly any sunspots. So at that point, the magnetic field flips. And then when the new sunspots form, they're opposite to what the previous set had been. So when we look at those, as an example here, sunspots have a tendency to come in pairs. In fact, they always come in pairs. Sometimes we'll only see one. Other one might not be quite as strong or there might be other issues with it. But because they're magnetic, they have to come in a pair. You have to have a north pole. You have to have a south pole. 
right? You can't take a magnet as a north and a south pole. If you break it in half, now the middle becomes north and south pole. You can't have just a single pole magnetically. It's not possible. So if you break a magnet in half, you don't have just one with the north pole and one with the south pole, but you now have two magnets, north and, with each with north and south. So the sunspots will always have a north and a south. So there'll be one that is the north spot and one that is the south spot. That's what flips. So as they're rotating around, during one cycle, the north spot might be leading, the south and the south spot trailing behind it. During the next cycle, that next 11-year cycle, it'll be the other way around. The south spot leads. So they take turns, right? Now, now the south spot is leading in the north. All that means is that the sun's magnetic field flipped upside down. What was the north magnetic pole is now the south magnetic pole. So why does this happen on the sun so significantly, but not on the Earth? I said the Earth's magnetic field does flip, but not quite as quickly. It takes a much longer time to do that. And a lot of that has to do with the way the sun rotates. And I've got some sketches here, but essentially the, the layers of the gas which are generating the electric field, or the magnetic field, all cause, all get twisted up by the differential rotation. I think I mentioned this earlier. The sun doesn't rotate like a ball. Right? If I take a ball and I rotate it, doesn't matter whether you're where you are on the ball, it all takes the same amount of time to go around. Same with the Earth, right? A day is 24 hours. Doesn't matter if you're at the equator or at the pole or any place in between. On the sun, the sun being a gas does not do that. The equator rotates faster, about 25 days. The pole rotates a lot slower, what did I say, 33, 34 days. So there's a big difference between how fast things rotate down here and how fast things rotate up towards the poles. So those magnetic field lines that are formed in the sun get dragged around as the sun moves. And that means, if we look at that, we had 25 days and it was 30 some days. Every three rotations, roughly, for the equator is two for the pole. Rotation is about a month and a half, about two, two, a little over two and a half months. So every couple of months, the equator laps the pole and has stretched those magnetic field lines around one time. So after a couple months, it does a little bit. After another rotation, a few months later, it stretched it around a third, second time and then a third. So the equator keeps lapping the pole and twisting up and tangling up those magnetic field lines. You can think of it like a rubber band that you just keep twisting and twisting and twisting. Eventually, it's going to snap. Right? You get it twisted and it starts to form odd shapes. That's how it may bulge out in certain places as you twist it up. That's what the sun's magnetic field is going to do. You twist it up enough and it starts to bulge. Those little bulges, places where it pops out, become the sunspots. That's what's confining the sun's, that's what's confining that sunspot, making it stay in one spot. Why does it not cool off? Because the magnetic field, that's where the magnetic field is coming up through really strong, and that confines everything and keeps it as a dark sunspot. So you'll get that little loop coming up, maybe here, where that just pops through the surface, cooling it off. Again, at two places where it goes out and where it comes in. And, uh, sorry, it keeps it, so it keeps, the, it keeps that area cooled off and confined. And that will get worse and worse as the sun gets tangled, as the magnetic field gets tangled more and more and more, as you do this over 11 years. Eventually, keep twisting that rubber band, keep twisting it, keep twisting it, it's going to snap. 
And think of that as what happens to the sun's magnetic field. Eventually it gets so tangled up that the whole thing just snaps, resets, and that's when it flips. At that reset, it flips upside down. All of a sudden, the magnetic field starts all over again, nice and smooth. You've just gotten it so tangled up that it snapped. Unlike the rubber band, which of course then is broken, right? The whole process with the magnetic field is just generate, still being generated by the sun, and it just starts all over again. So this is where we get that cycle of the sun. It takes it 11 years about to tangle it up enough to get it to finally give up, throw up its hands, and say, all right, I'm resetting everything. We've got to start over again with this. So that's what's going on with the sun. We think it's all magnetic in terms of all the solar activity that we're going to look at uh, here and in the next section is all due to the uh, magnetic fields of the sun and getting twisted. So the earth does this to some extent, but it takes a lot longer. Remember, we rotate as a solid body for the most part. So it takes a lot longer for this to get twisted up. There are some metal parts to the earth deep down inside. So there are some ways you can slowly twist this, twist it up as well. But it takes, again, tens of thousands of years, not just tens of years, to be able to do this. Now, when we look at this at even longer times, right, we, we can study sunspots pretty regularly going back to the time of Galileo. So we can go back to about 1600 there. Before 1600, if we had any reports of sunspots, they were scattered. Maybe there was just one giant spot. You couldn't see them regularly. But we had a stretch there. Galileo was observing here, and we counted, started counting sunspots. We had some, some ideas of the cycle, but there wasn't any regular observations going on. It wasn't organized, so there were some observations. We could see that there were some higher areas and lower areas, but it was quite irregular. And we honestly don't know. You know if we'd had much better accurate observations there, maybe we'd know better whether this was a good part of the cycle or whether it was really getting irregular. Because there is this gap here. We didn't stop observing sunspots. People were still observing the sun. There just weren't any. For 50 years, there were no sunspots. Between about 1650 and 1700, there were none. Not absolutely zero. It doesn't mean there weren't times there you saw one lone sunspot across the sun. But for 50 years, there was essentially nothing. You know, what you saw here for 50 years, up and down and up and down, you saw nothing here. And if you look at it closely enough, there are a few little bumps. You've got a couple sunspots that were observed. But pretty much for 50 years, there was nothing for those decades. And that actually relates to the temperatures here on Earth that we'll look at in a little bit. When we had very few sunspots, that was a time of very intense winters. The more suns, and it's, sometimes that doesn't make sense, right? Wait, the sun is cooler. Those are cooler spots on the sun. Shouldn't the sun be cooler? Uh, but if not, but the sunspots don't make the sun cooler, they make the sun hotter. Because there's signs of more magnetic activity. There's more activity on the sun. And while it may cool off those little sections, overall, the overall activity and the output of the sun is increased. So the more sunspots we see, the warmer temperatures we get. And the low, fewer sunspots we see, the, the cooler temperatures we get. So if you actually map out you know, Earth temperatures, you can see a relationship to the sun that there are increases and decreases based on that. And at this time, you know, that was what was called the mini ice age back in Europe. Some call it the Maunder Minimum here. I think I gave you that name, Maunder Minimum. But something is called the Little Ice Age. It wasn't an ice age. There weren't great glaciers coming down. But the winters were unusually cold for a few decades there because the sun was not as active. 
Then it picked back up again. And back in the 1700s, and then and it started kind of slowly, and then it started to get regular. And at this point, we were making regular people were making regular observations of the sun. There are other times where it started, where we got something like there's two here in a row that were very low, other stretches in here that were very low. So there is some uh, some variation in the sunspot cycle that we see. But this one was one that's very important, and the one thing we don't know, and some people are talking that this is what's coming again. You know, we're headed towards another Maunder minimum because this last cycle was so irregular. Are we getting to the, you know, jagged end of a point here? And will we get an even littler cycle or will the next cycle just skip and will we not have another one for a few decades? It's not something we can predict. Models just aren't there to be able to say, yes, we know that much about the sun because we don't know how often something like this occurs. If it occurs every few hundred years, we're due. If it occurs every few thousand years, we probably don't have something coming in the near future. We just don't know because we don't have the data going back far enough to be able to get those kind of measurements. To be able to say that, hey, this happens every 500 years. So, you know, roughly plus or minus since the last one was in the 1600s, we're coming up close to being due. Okay, it wouldn't be due to 2100, but it's not that it's not a precise cycle. So, we could be coming up to. So, that's something that people are actually considering because the last one was so unusual, delayed and very weak that it's a possibility that we might be coming into you know, another uh, unusually uh, quiet period for the sun. But again, it's limited amount of data. We only know really accurately what the sun was like from about this time in here. You know, we started making observations, but you know, how reliable all of these are and how complete they are is in question. So we really know things from picking up afterwards. All right, so finishing up this, and let's get on to how the activity, what the activity types are. The sunspots, cooler, darker regions that we see in the photosphere of the sun. They come and go in the 11-year cycle, roughly. So more sunspots. If there are lots of sunspots in 2001, you'd expect there'd be more in 2012, and that there were a lot in 1990. It's pretty regularly, and you can go back a couple hundred years and only be off by a few years either way with those, if you use about an 11-year average. The magnetic cycle is actually 22 years because that's the flipping of the magnetic field. So by the time it comes back to the North Pole being the North Pole again, you've lasted two cycles. You've gone through two full cycles. That's why I say this one is 22 years long, but the sunspot cycle is 11 years long. So you go back to the North Magnetic Pole being the North Magnetic Pole 22 years later, not just one cycle later. And then finally, I said they're all, the sunspots and the activity that we're going to talk about in this next section are all magnetic. They're all caused by the twisting and tangling of the solar magnetic field. If the sun had no magnetic field, then we wouldn't see any of this. You wouldn't see any sunspots. You wouldn't see any of the activity that we're going to be talking about here in just a second. Questions on that first before I... All right. So let's look at some of the signs of solar activity. Uh, we've looked at one of them already. This is a picture of sunspots. So we have some of those sunspots. Again, some of those things are large. Those are bigger than the Earth. So some of those largest sunspots are actually larger than the Earth. Uh, but we have some other signs of activity as well that I've talked about over here. And I have some pictures of those. Uh, the plages are actually the brighter, denser areas that we see around here. So you see the sunspots, you actually get some light areas around it. And those are also a sign of activity. 
They could be regions where sunspots are developing. Maybe as they get darker and darker, you could be forming a sunspot there. You could be building up the magnetic field. But it's something going on around the sunspots. And we see it around the level of where the sunspots are forming. So you see a sunspot. It's got all of that around it. The prettier ones, the more interesting ones, are things like prominences. Prominences are material actually being lifted off the surface of the sun. So there's an example here. As you look at the limb of the sun, you have some material here. And that's being lifted off the surface. How do you lift material off the sun? It's got incredible gravity. You have the magnetic fields. Those magnetic field lines, remember, as they got tangled and as they started to pop out, they can lift up material. So as they come through the solar surface, they lift up material off the surface and raise it up into this nice loop. That's the magnetic. The loop is following the magnetic field lines. And then it rains back down. So this isn't anything big. Prominences occur all the time. And they lift material off. And then the material rains back down on the surface of the sun. That's a several thousand degree plasma rain. So it's not a nice, cool rain you want to go out for a walk in. But it just lifts material off. And then uh, it falls back down. So they may last a few days, a few weeks. You know, they'll slowly lift the material up over the course of a couple days. They'll stay there. And then they'll slowly fizzle out. And the material will fall back down to the sun. However, you can get cases where it happens even faster. Where instead of lifting it off gently, lifting that material up, it can snap. And instead of taking days to lift that material, it can do it in the matter of minutes. That's what we call a solar flare. So a solar flare is actually an ejection of material. And you're sending that material out with such high speeds that it actually escapes from the sun. So this is material actually escaping from the sun. I think I have another one here where we have more of a stronger solar flare. And that actually breaks open. So the magnetic field, it's the same process that causes the prominence. It was just one is a gentle lifting, one is a snapping very quickly. Time scale is what is different. So when the solar flare occurs, it actually ejects material out into space in that direction. That can affect us. That can give us the aurora if it's headed towards Earth. Right? If it doesn't happen to head towards Earth, not a big deal. Right? If the Earth is over on this side of its orbit at the time a big ejection comes out here, we'll, never, we'll see it. We can study it because we have satellites up there to look at it. But we won't, we won't notice its effects here on Earth. We won't see the aurora. However, if it was coming, if the Earth was on this side of its orbit and the flare comes in our general direction, we would be able then to see enhanced aurora. We get a little bit of warning because those particles don't travel instantly fast. Right? Particles don't travel at the speed of light. So we see the flare, and then several days later, the particles get here. So we can actually have a little bit of couple days warning between the time we see a flare and the time that the particles actually get here. The light doesn't do anything to us. Right? We can see the light. We can see the pretty flare. We can see the pretty prominence. Those things we can see. But the actual material takes a little longer, takes several days to travel the 93 million miles between the sun and the Earth. So we have a little bit of warning on that. We can also have some uh, larger events. Um, there are different classes of flares. You'll hear of some. But there's also what we call a coronal mass ejection, or CME, which actually send, is even more intense, sends out more material. These ones can actually be dangerous. So these are ones that could actually be dangerous to us here on Earth. Not so much to us 
personally. It's not going to you know, hurt you, but they're, uh, charged particles are very big at uh, frying electronics. So massive, a massive amount of charged particles traveling towards the Earth. Our magnetic field protects us somewhat, but it can be overloaded. The sun can easily overload what the Earth can do. So these particles could fry things like communication satellites, you know, electronics here on Earth, computers, cell phones, you know, things that we kind of are dependent on today. Right? Uh, so we need that kind of stuff. Um, what we have is that these coronal mass ejections, they're rare. And again, they have to be pointed in the right direction. To scale, if this is the sun, the Earth is you know, a little tiny P way down at the end of the hall there. So it's got to be coming right at the Earth. If it's at a little bit of an angle, it misses us. So the last time we actually had one hit us was back in the 1850s, right before the Civil War. I think it was 1858 or 1859 that, one, that a large CME struck us. It caused aurora that were visible in Hawaii. Now aurora, North Pole, right? High latitudes, they're visible in Canada, Alaska, Scandinavia. We don't usually see them down here. You can if you get an intense flare. But to see them in Hawaii, which is only 20 degrees from the equator, that means that you had to really deform the sun's magnetic field. Aurora in Colorado apparently woke people up in the middle of the night. It was so bright, it looked like sunrise. That's how bright the aurora were. So you can have some various things there. Now, Back in the 1850s, we didn't have a lot of electronics, so there was no electronics, no satellites to fry, but it did start, wires in the, or start fires in the telegraphs. So the, the charged particles would generate currents within the telegraph wires and start fires there. So you can, you can imagine what something major like that could do today, where we're very much dependent on you know, electronics and things much more to a much higher extent than we uh, were back in the 1850s. They do occur, some, one will hit us again at some point. I can't tell you if it would be next month or 50 years from now or 500 years from now. So there is some probability they do occur all the time. Lots of CMEs have occurred, but it's only if they come. They have to be directed almost directly at the Earth. So we have to be at the right spot or the, the wrong spot at the right time when that happens to occur for it to really cause any damage. But they can cause interference. They've had to put some satellites uh, down into hibernation modes and seal them down. Some of these solar satellites when that happened to be in other orbits that did get hit, they had to be put in kind of hibernation to keep them uh, working. All right, so how can these affect Earth? Then we're going to look at some of this. Again, I talked about some of this already. Uh, this was the 1859, I was close. So how can they affect Earth? Again, they can all there. This is the one that overloaded the Earth's magnetic field. Right. Normally, Earth's magnetic field buffers us. You've got particles from the sun, they come and they get pushed around it. If you get more particles, it crunches down the Earth's magnetic field and it still buffers them away. Eventually, if you send so many particles, you overwhelm it. Right. You can imagine a rock somewhere sitting in the, in the soil. Right? You've got water flowing around it and the water will eventually go around it and around it. But if you get enough water coming through, eventually, it overwhelms it and it will push the rock down as well. If you get a big flood coming through, it will push that through. Well, that's what happens here. So, again, a magnetic disturbances could damage a lot of stuff today. And there is, if you want to keep an eye on those, there's actually the website there, uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association Administration. You can go to their website. They can actually monitor you know, what the things are, what is going on with the sun.
Now right now we're heading towards a quieter period, so it's less likely. That doesn't mean there's no chance, but we're heading towards the quieter period. Uh, we'd certainly see more of this kind of thing near a uh, more active portion of the sun. All right, so how about the Earth's climate? How does it affect the Earth? The Earth? Again, I talked about a little bit of this before, but when you have low solar activity, you have cooler temperatures. So there is a relationship between how much solar activity, how many sunspots you have, and what the temperatures, average temperatures, are like on the Earth. The Maunder minimum I mentioned, that was the mini ice age that occurred. So back at the areas, you know, you can have, there's supposed to be graphs of some of the temperatures. It's not a big change, but it doesn't take a whole lot of a change, you know, a few degrees. Uh, is enough to get the winters, you know, a few winters are a few degrees colder consistently for 50 years adds up and makes the average temperatures a little bit lower. Uh, there was also another minimum that's mentioned here. Again, that kind of shows up a little bit in here. You can have a little bit of a dip in terms of what the temperatures were like, the average temperatures, how they changed. This section here, this was one of the stretches around the Maunder minimum between uh, the 16 hundreds, the times of Galileo, there was again a big stretch there where there were not a lot of sunspots. And overall it dropped them. Again, we're kind of iffy on what the Galileo time ones were, what they were in the early 1600s. But there were definitely some kind of relationship between temperatures that we see here on Earth and the solar activity. So it does come and go. It'll get warmer, it'll get colder. There are some distinct patterns that will occur that match up with solar activity. However, the problem is we do see lots of other material. If we go back in the past trying to look at this, we can, we can try to estimate what the sunspot cycles were based on other observations. It's difficult, but there are some problems trying to match it up, trying to get the models to match it up uh, to show this kind of intense impact. So there, are, there is still a lot going on. You know, do we need new models or is there more, you know, we're still working, scientific method here in progress. Do the models need to be changed? Not, not everything is fitting perfectly. There are some relations, but they're not great. I mean, you can see some here. This is, this is a little ice age, but some of this looked like it was a large peak here. Was that just unusual? Or was there a regular cycle? Were there regular cycles going back here, which would make it odd that this would have been the Little Ice Age? So there's a lot going on there. This one's a little more distinct, and that's when we had better measurements. We had a lower period for a few decades, and you had a very distinct drop in temperatures that corresponded with that time. But there are still some things that, are being, that have to be worked on there to really be able to understand the details of how much and the effects that the sun is having on the climate here on the Earth. All right, finishing up this section then, we talked about the solar activity, uh, prominences, flares, coronal mass ejections, etc. We looked at the different types of those. Uh, I talked about how they can affect the Earth in terms of damages, damages to electronics. So a significant one you know, could cause damage uh, to, the, to electronics, again, computers, cell phones, anything electronic, which is just about everything. Right now, that includes cars, right? Cars are all run electronically. So if you fry the computer in a car, it's useless. So a lot of things would be affected. This could actually, that's not just that it would affect all oh, your cell phones gone, but communications, but anything else that depended, uh, that depends on any kind of electronics, which is about you know, just about everything we use today. Um, there is a possible connection between the solar activity and the Earth's climate, but again, we're still we're still looking to get the models to work as well as we would like. All right, 
questions before we jump to the interior of the sun? Let's see. So chapter 16. So chapter 16, here we go. It's going to we're going to talk about how energy is generated in the sun. So we're going to move from the stuff we can see. Right? We can see solar flares, we can see the activity, we can see sunspots. Those are things we can see directly. Now we're going to move down to the interior of the sun and try to look at that. We know that the sun was producing energy, right? It's giving off so much energy every second. It's giving off all of that heat. How is it going about doing that? This has been a big question. Even a hundred years ago, we really didn't know how the sun produced its heat. How did it produce all this energy? So, so I want to give you the idea. This is something we've known for a long period of time. This is something that we've only figured out relatively recently. It's not burning. So we think of burning, right, a big lump of coal. You can actually do calculations. People have done them. And that would last for several thousand years. If you had a lump of coal the size of the sun burning, how it's burning, where it's getting the oxygen, let's not worry about those questions. But if it were burning, it would last a few thousand years. Okay, we know that the Earth is uh, four and a half billion years old, so the sun has to be at least as old as the Earth. So something that only lasts for a few thousand years isn't sufficient. There is also a way to look at that by in terms of conservation of energy. So we can't, you can't create or destroy energy. We've got some amount of energy, but you can, but energy can change form. So it can change from one form to another. You can have potential energy, something has position, it has energy because of position. Right, my little case here. I hold it up in the up. It's got potential energy. It's got the potential to do work. If I drop it, whoops, crashes all the way down to the floor. It gets kinetic energy. It starts moving faster and faster. The potential energy is changed into kinetic energy. It hits the floor and it stops. All the energy's gone, right? Doesn't have potential energy because it's on the floor. Doesn't have kinetic energy because it's not moving. Energy had to go somewhere. You can't get rid of it. What it did, it's a little bit warmer than it was before. Doesn't take a whole lot. It can warm up a fraction of a degree in that, but it's something you can actually uh, measure. So it just converts it to heat. So it can change form. So that gives us another way to be able to explain gravitation, to, to explain the sun. And this was done in the mid 1900s. They suggested Kelvin and Helmholtz, two scientists of the time, suggested that the sun would, was converting gravitational energy to heat. It meant that the sun had to be contracting, getting a little bit smaller. So if the sun got a little bit smaller each day, shrink, 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 you, the potential energy is being converted to kinetic energy, which through friction is then converted to heat, and that would make the sun glow. And it works. You can actually do the calculation. This actually works for Saturn. This is actually what we believe happens in Saturn right now, that it's still contracting. The contraction would be 40 meters per year. You wouldn't notice it. Over lifetimes, you would not notice the sun shrinking 40 meters. Okay, we could probably measure that accurately today, but if you're just looking at the sun, you know, the sun today would look the same size as the sun hundreds of years ago or the sun hundreds of years from now. 40 meters for the sun is a very small amount. And this would be able to power the sun for 100 million years. 
Now that was sufficient. At the time we did not know, this is the mid-1800s, we did not know how old the Earth was. So this was great. This actually could explain the power source of the Sun. But now we know it's four and a half billion years old. So if the Sun could only give energy for a hundred million years, where did we have energy before that? Where were we getting all our energy from before that? Because the temperature of the Earth has been pretty constant for four and a half billion years now. So if the Sun has to be able to last a little bit, has to be able to last longer than that. And then we got the answer uh, partially by this gentleman, who you probably recognize, right, Albert Einstein, who gave us the idea that you can convert, right, and that energy is still conserved, but that mass is a form of energy. Energy and mass are related. Right? One of the equations everybody always hears of, right, E equals mc squared. What it means is that energy and mass are really just different versions of the same thing. And if you have a certain amount of energy, that corresponds to some amount of mass. So if you have a certain amount of mass, it corresponds to some amount of energy. You can convert energy, you can convert mass to energy, and that's not violating anything because they're just different forms of the same thing. So you can have a mass energy of, it, of an object. So if you convert a little bit of mass, gives you a lot of energy. C is the speed of light, 300,000 kilometers per second. You take a big number and you square it, it gives you a really big number. And you multiply that by even a small mass, that gives you a lot of energy. So you can take tiny amounts of mass and make a lot of energy out of them. You can work it the other way around. And we, this has been done too. You can take lots and lots of energy and create tiny bits of matter. It takes a lot of energy to do it because now you've got to divide it by the speed of light squared. You've got to divide it by a big number. So you need a lot of energy to make individual uh, particles. You can create them. Super colliders can do this. They can take lots of energy and they can actually create new particles. So you can actually do this as well. You can work this either way. But the example I give you here uh, that I found, it says you know, even a small amount of energy. So if you take a paper clip, a little paper clip, convert it completely to energy, that's 15,000 barrels of oil. I mean, that's a lot of energy in a little paper clip. So if you could really convert all of that, you could make tons of energy. If you had just one way to convert one paper clip, that would last you know, a little bit. But you wouldn't need a lot of matter to be able to get, uh, to get a significant amount of energy. So that's what we find now is what is going on in the sun. And what I'm going to go over in the rest of this is kind of how this goes about. What the, proce the process by which the sun goes about doing this. How does it convert a paper clip into energy? Doesn't convert a paper clip, but you know, a, a don't, don't need a whole lot of those, that amount of material, to be able to get the energy that we see from the sun today. Uh, to start talking about it, we have to look at some elementary particles here. Matter. Everything we have, we have, we know, is this section on the left uh, side here. Atoms are made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons. So protons, positive charge, neutrons, neutral, electrons, negative charge. Protons and neutrons have all the mass. Uh, electrons have very little mass but take up most of the space of an atom. However, each of these has an antiparticle. So there is an antiparticle, a corresponding particle to an uh, electron called a positron that exists and that would annihilate. 
Right? Matter and antimatter meet, boom, they're gone. They, can, they annihilate completely to energy. So if you have positrons and electrons and you just collide the two together, right? they're just going to collide. They disappear. The matter's gone. Whatever that mass was, multiply it by C squared. That's how much energy you've just done. Now, electrons very low mass, so it's gonna, but it's going to add up to a good amount of energy. You can also have, you also have antiprotons, antineutrons. You could theoretically have antiatoms. You could have a proton with a, uh, uh, sorry, an antiproton with an anti-electron orbiting it and have anti-hydrogen. This doesn't exist much in our universe. Antimatter is very, very rare. So there are not big pockets of antimatter out there. But there are some places where we do see positrons. We'll talk about them in terms of the solar energy. They're part of the source of the energy for the sun. That the sun creates these creates this type of particle. But you can have antimatter as well. And part of that, especially this one at the top, is what counts for a chunk of the energy of the sun. So if you could meet them. Why? Why don't we have any antimatter? Probably goes back to the origin of our universe, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit towards the end when we talk about how the universe formed. You know, why is the universe made up of all matter, and is there another universe somewhere that has that is generally antimatter that has a lot of antimatter in it, and actually has things made up of these? That's actually a, it's a distinct possibility. The other particle we want to talk about was the neutrino. A neutrino. Was, an, was one of these particles that was theorized to exist because when we were starting to study nuclear reactions uh, back 100 years ago or so, some of them seemed to, be lo- seemed to lose energy. When you did that, there just seemed to be some energy missing. When you figured out what went in and what came out, there was energy missing. And that's accounting for any mass or anything else conversion. You're still missing something. So, Theorized that there was this particle, a little neutral one, because it had no charge, or we would have been able to detect it, and it didn't like to interact with anything. So, sounds like one of those things that you propose just as kind of you know, hand waving to explain why is it not? Well, there's this particle that we can't really detect, that doesn't interact with anything, it doesn't have any charge, that just comes out, and that balances the energy. But we've actually been able to, we have been able to detect it now. But they are extremely low mass. They don't have any charge. That means they don't do anything. And they don't interact with ordinary matter. They don't like to interact with us. In fact, there are billions of neutrinos that are streaming through you right now. They never interact with you. They go right through you. They go right through the Earth. And they head out into space. So there are billions of neutrinos. You also get some hitting you from below. Right? They're coming up through the Earth. They don't interact. They don't interact. They could travel through lead. You know, Lead from here to the sun, they'd still zip right through it. They don't interact with ordinary matter. Right? Nothing else we know would do that. If we tried to send protons or electrons, boom, they'd be stopped. But they interact through the electromagnetic force, and neutrinos do not. Neutrinos do not behave to act through the same types of forces. So what this comes down to is that we want to look at is the types of nuclear reactions that can then, we can then use to give us energy. So how can we get some energy out of this? Well, there's two types of nuclear reactions. There's nuclear fission, which is splitting things apart. Right, that's what we use here on Earth. Right? Nuclear power plants use things like uranium and plutonium that are large atoms, some of the largest atoms, and they split them down into smaller atoms. When you take a big atom, big atom apart into two pieces, it splits. 
and it gives off energy. So you've lost a little bit of mass. The two, if you take the two products, they're a little bit less massive than the one atom that made them. A little bit of mass was lost, it's converted into energy. That's how a nuclear power plant works. It's not like antimatter. You're not colliding things and completely getting rid of it. You're getting rid of a tiny fraction of the mass with every reaction. But that's how you know, nuclear weapons, nuclear power plants work. They convert the energy of this, this little bit of energy of the atom, into actual heat energy that we can use. It's not useful for the stars. It doesn't help us with the sun or the stars because the sun is made up of hydrogen and helium. The sun is not made up of uranium and plutonium. Right? If it were, this might work in the sun. If you had a big blob of uranium, that way you would be able to decay. Uh, you would be able to get something like that. However, it probably wouldn't work because it would also, when we have a nuclear power plant, we have control rods and all sorts of things that go in there to, to keep the reactions under control. So just a big blob of this material would not last very long. It would get a runaway reaction and would be gone. It would, be, would explode essentially. So it doesn't help with stars though. They're not, that's not what the stars are made up of. The stars are made up of hydrogen and helium. So we've got to look at the other side of this. So we can look at nuclear fusion. Fusion takes lighter elements, things like hydrogen, and fuses them into heavier atoms. The problem is, it's easy to split something apart. You can split apart a uranium nucleus, you can throw neutrons at it and split it apart. And once you split it apart a little bit, you have one thing with a big positive charge and another thing with a big positive charge. Like charges repel, boom, they spread apart. So you can split them apart. If you want to take two hydrogen atoms and put them together, positive po charge, positive charge, you've got to bring them closer together, they're pushing apart, right? You've got positive and positive, like charges repel, they try to repel each other. So if you try to send them close to each other, they're going to push each other away. That means you've got to send them at really, really high speeds or high temperatures. So we don't have fusion here on Earth because it takes really high temperatures to do it. Not just thousands of degrees. Nuclear fusion can't occur in the surface of the sun. It's only 6,000 degrees. Way too cold to get the electrons to fit together. Even though it's hotter than anything we're used to, it's not hot enough to get those electrons close enough together before their ordinary forces push them apart. But the temperatures at the sun, well, you need a minimum of 10 million. Our sun is actually 15 million at its center. At 15 million degrees, you can actually get hydrogen close enough that they'll stick together. Now, I told you that they repel apart, right? If you have these two positive charges just like this, how do they stick together? Well, they have to, right? Because we're here. Otherwise, atoms wouldn't exist. Because the carbon atoms that make up our body have six protons in the nucleus of each one touching each other. And they would, if they were repelling each other, then the carbon atoms would split apart and the whole universe would be made of hydrogen. So we wouldn't be here. There is another force they call the strong nuclear force that works. It works only really close distances. If you can get those things almost touching, then there is another force that overwhelms the electromagnetic force that pushes them, up, that holds them together. So it's the reason we have atoms. If, we, if it was just the electromagnetic force, atoms wouldn't exist. Because, except for hydrogen. Because any atom with multiple positive charges in its nucleus would push it, would rip itself apart. So there has to be another force that holds them together. And if you get things up to about 10 to 15 million degrees, you can push those, you can push them together and they'll actually stick. You also need very high densities. So even if you have low density of materials and high temperatures, the corona of the sun was millions of degrees, 
but there's so few particles that they're not going to be enough of them. There aren't going to be enough collisions where things are going to be able to stick together. So, how does this work? Well, let me give you the sketch of what we call the proton-proton chain, which is how energy is produced in stars like our sun. In fact, any star smaller than our sun does this. Stars like our sun and stars maybe four to five times more massive than our sun. That accounts for about 99% of every star we see in the universe. There's a few others. There are some other methods that we can talk about later on uh, that account for other stars. But for stars like our sun, this is it. So this is what it is doing. This is how it takes four hydrogen atoms, goes through a process, and converts them to one helium atom. So it does this in multiple steps. It can't do it in just one. It actually, in order to get hydrogen into helium, to get four things colliding at the same time would be really hard. You need even higher temperatures. So it does it in stages. The first step, step one here, two hydrogen atoms combine. So high temperatures, they collide together, they stick together. In the process, one of them is converted into a neutron. So one pot, one is, there's two protons strike each other. One gets converted into the gray color here, which is a neutron. There's a particle that comes out. Just like mass and energy, charge has to be conserved. So if you have two positive charges here, you have to have two positive charges here. You can't just lose charge, electrical charge can't just disappear. So this is a small object with positive charge. That's the positron, anti-electron, that comes out. So this first step can produces positrons, it produces antimatter. And forms another version of hydrogen. We call deuterium, it's, a, it's heavy hydrogen. Just like hydrogen, it has one proton, but it has one neutron as well. So as they come together, that forms the deuterium atom and a positron and a neutrino. Again, the neutrino was the one that was originally just thrown in there to make energy conserved. To make the energy conserved in this reaction, in this kind of reaction. We now know that it does exist, and I'll talk about it a little bit more later. So that's step one. Two protons form heavy hydrogen and a positron. That positron doesn't last very long. It's antimatter in the middle of the dense sun, which is filled with matter. So what does it do? It finds an electron and they annihilate each other like that. Converting the mass to energy, there's some energy that's heating up the sun. Because you've now taken, this is now that little bit of mass, along with one of the electrons in the sun, are now gone. And they've annihilated each other, and that forms you know, energy. So that's one source of energy from the sun. Second stage, here you take that deuterium and you collide it with another hydrogen atom. A little bit simpler process than the first one. You don't have as much going on here. So you have these two collide together, they stick together if they get close enough, and they form helium. But not the helium we're used to. They form what's called helium-3. It's an isotope of helium, remember a different version of it, uh, that has two protons and one neutron. Ordinary helium, which we're trying to get to, has two protons and two neutrons. That's the helium we use on Earth to fill up balloons and things, is all this type, which we call helium-4. So helium-3 is then formed. And it's just a, like this was a heavier version of hydrogen, this is a lighter version of helium. The next step, the third step, you take two of those helium nuclei, they collide together, crash those together, and you can then form helium-4. 
Two of those protons go out, which can continue this process. Run it back in there and start it again. And you have helium-4, which is nice and stable and just sits there at the center of the sun. So this is really what the sun is doing. The sun is going through billions upon billions of these reactions every single second. Each little, each little reaction produces a tiny amount of energy. It's not a, one reaction does not produce a lot of energy. But overall, together they produce a lot. Together when you have many billions of them every single second, that produces energy. And the sun has enough hydrogen to do this for 10 billion years. That's how much energy is at the core of the sun to be able to do this. So how does it give us energy? When we look at the mass of the helium nucleus, just looking at the net difference between what we put in up here versus what we get out down here. The helium nucleus is 0.71% less than the mass of the four protons that went into it. Tiny difference, less than, less than, less than 1% difference in mass. So essentially, if you take that, you take that little bit of mass difference and convert it to energy. Now what, that's each reaction. If you look at one kilogram of hydrogen, right? sun has a lot, a lot of kilograms in it. But one kilogram of hydrogen converted to helium, just take that one kilogram, would produce some tremendous amount number of uh, joules of energy. But that's about the electric supply of the US for two weeks. Just one kilo, just fusing one kilogram of hydrogen into helium. So one kilogram, imagine a you know, kilogram of hydrogen, that's not a whole lot. And the sun has, you know, not, not just billions or trillions or quadrillions, but you know, very, very large amounts of hydrogen that it's able to do this. So again, it's that little bit of mass difference. It's not much. So the sun's mass really isn't changing as it does this. Yeah, it's going down a little bit because it's losing a little bit of mass every time this reaction occurs. But if you convert all of the hydrogen into helium, you're still only making a 1%, less than a 1% difference in the mass of the sun. It didn't change significantly. And it doesn't change significantly over the course of its life. So the other one I want to mention, and we may look at this a little bit more when we talk about other stars, but there is another cycle called the carbon-nitrogen-oxygen cycle. And I'm not going to go through the sketch of how this works. But the carbon-nitrogen-oxygen cycle, it's another way to fuse hydrogen into helium. It doesn't work in the sun, but for the most massive stars, the biggest stars, this is where they get all their energy. Essentially what it does is it starts with a carbon nucleus and it builds on it. You add a proton, if you add a proton to carbon, you get nitrogen. If you add another proton, you keep adding protons to it and you build up carbon, but you don't keep doing that. Once you get the fourth proton added in, it splits and you get your carbon atom back and you get a helium atom. So instead of building it uh, separate, instead of building it separately as the sun did through the proton-proton chain, it uses the carbon as a catalyst. Adds protons to the carbon until you get the four, then that helium atom splits off, and you have your carbon to do the process again. It works very efficiently for very high mass stars. It's just kind of another way to go about building this up. All right. Questions? Hint, I will not ask you to draw the proton-proton chain on the exam. <laughs> I might, I, that doesn't mean I won't ask you about the proton-proton, or what goes into it, what comes out, how it works, but I'm not going to ask you to resketch the whole thing on the exam. I don't want you to spend your time studying. I have to memorize each of the steps in it. Um, I do want you to know the general process as to what's going on there. 
So, whew, right? Don't have to worry about that. So, let's summarize this section. Um, we finally solved it. I mean, Einstein kind of started the solution by telling us that mass and energy were the same. And as we learned more and more about nuclear reactions, that gave us a better idea of how the sun's energy was being generated. We talked about how the sun produces energy. I went through the proton-proton chain. Again, four protons go in. What came out? Well, one helium atom and some energy. But there were some other things. There were some neutrinos that I'll talk about in this next section that we want to look at. Uh, there were some positrons that came out that converted to merge with the electrons to give us some of the energy. So it wasn't just converted energy. There were some other particles that were created there as well. And the big thing was that there's a mass difference between four hydrogen atoms and a helium atom. Less than a percent. But when you do that, that gives you that little bit of energy. So you convert you know, seven-tenths of the sun's mass, not even seven-tenths of the sun mass, but approximately, uh, to energy. And that gives you the power of the sun. That can power the sun for 10 billion years. Eventually, you use it up. Right? There's only a li- just like you know, your gas tank, if you don't have a way to refill it, there's no way to refill the sun. And you drive, eventually you're out of power. Eventually the sun will run out of power. So, subject coming up over the next, what we'll be talking about later this month. You know, what happens when you run out of energy? What happens when you no longer have any hydrogen left at the center of the sun diffused to helium? You don't have an energy source. And that's going to be a problem. And that will lead us to the end stages of the sun's life that we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. All right, so the last section here, don't worry about the equations. I just put them up there to give you an idea of what you really need to do to solve these. We're not going through them. You're not tested on them. You won't see them again. But you can make models. How can we determine what the interior of the sun is really like? I've given you some ideas as to what it's like. I mean, I've kind of talked to you about how it's going through that models. But how can we actually do some calculations? Well, this is what astronomers use. These are four equations are what you can use to really determine what is going on at every point inside the sun. You can make theoretical models. These relate the the pressure, mass, luminosity, and temperature. That's what they mean. So, and they tell you about what's going on within the sun. They're all related together. There's distances, there's densities, all sorts of numbers that come in there. But the whole idea is what you can do is you start at the center of the sun with some predictions. What is the temperature like at the center of the sun? What is the mass distribution of the sun like? How is the mass distributed? And you can then go through and calculate. You calculate at what it is at the center. Move out a little bit. Okay, that means that this energy, the, the next layer is going to be like this. And you do the calculations there. And you keep stepping that outward until you get to the surface of the sun. Well, that's great. Now you've got some predictions as to what the pressures, masses, luminosity, and temperatures of the sun should be. You got che- do they match? Right? Do they fit with what we see for the sun? If they don't, then you can go fiddle with your numbers and play with them and say maybe the distribution of the sun is like this. So, I mean, the equations we know are correct. They explain how radiation is transported. Applying them to the sun allows us to then interpret and determine what the sun is like inside. So again, I'm not making you go through any of that. I just throw them up there to show you, you know, what astronomers are actually doing, the kind of calculations that they will solve. Put all of these into a computer. You can put your initial estimates in. And you can just solve these equations at every step for the interior of the sun and see how that matches when you get to the surface. Does it actually come out 
correct to what you're supposed to what we what we expect to get. Right? Because if your number doesn't tell you that the sun is giving off the energy that it is, something's wrong. Maybe that means the temperature is hotter or cooler at the center and you've got to make some adjustments and redo the calculation. Maybe you got the wrong mass for the sun. Maybe you got the wrong temperature for the surface of the sun. Again, you can keep changing the values to really make that work, to make it fit what you're seeing. Because we can't see inside the sun. What is going on inside the sun? Everything that I showed you with the proton-proton chain, that's all deep in the core. That does not go on in the surface. That's not what's happening in the photosphere. That's not what's happening even in the upper layers of the sun. That is only occurring deep down inside in the core. That's the only place that any of that is occurring. So what do we know about the sun? Well, we know what it's made up of. It's made up of a plasma, a ga an ionized gas. When you get down, you get to such high temperatures that that means every atom in it, especially when you get down into the interior, is ionized. All the electrons have been ripped off. So all these electrons are just floating around. Right? And in the core, that's where they, they all disappear because they're going to get bombarded with the positrons that form through the nuclear reactions. So it behaves, the whole thing behaves like a hot gas. There is no solid or liquid component to the sun. Does it matter that the density of the sun at the center is 150 times denser than water? Denser than any metal we have on the earth. It's still such a high temperature at 15 million degrees. Even under those incredible densities, everything is still behaves like a gas. We also know that the sun has been stable for billions of years. How do we know? We haven't been around for billions of years. Well, life has on earth. If the sun were not stable, if the sun changed its temperature a little bit, on its surface, we wouldn't be here. If it got just you know 10% higher, the amount of energy being produced goes up significantly. Not just 10% higher, but would go be, be even more than that. It goes up as the, it's the fourth power. So essentially, you change the temperature a little bit, the, the amount of energy the sun is producing would be a lot more, or a lot less if you cool it off. So if the sun were going through wild swings in temperature, We'd be going through alternating periods of completely freezing off everything on the Earth or completely burning up and burning off the atmosphere. So we, there'd be no life on the Earth if the sun had not been relatively stable for billions of years. So we know that the sun, three billion years ago, was putting out about the same amount of energy that it's putting out today. That means that it's in what we call hydrostatic equilibrium. It's balanced between pressure and gravity. If you think about it, what's going on at the center of the sun is essentially like a hydrogen bomb. Right? You've got hydrogen going to going fusing to helium. You've got all this energy being produced down here. That's putting a lot of pressure. That's pushing things outward. So if nothing else were involved, this sun would explode. You've got all this energy being produced at the center that would push all the layers off and the whole sun would explode. However, we have a force balancing that. There's a pressure trying to push the sun apart, but there's also gravity balancing it down. Gravity is trying to pull the sun down. The entire life of a star, like the sun, is a fight between the pressure in the center and gravity. Gravity is trying to pull it down. Gravity formed the sun in the first place, right, allowing material to condense down. Once it got hot enough, it now is producing pressure and it's balanced perfectly. It produces just enough energy in the core to balance gravity pushing down and it just sits there. So it's in a perfect state of equilibrium. 
And it can do that for 10 billion years. As long as it can produce the energy in the core, it's fine. Once it is no longer able to produce energy in the core, that's when things start to happen. That's when things will start to happen. But there's a complete balance between pressure and gravity. If you get out of balance a little bit, if you, for example, produce a little less energy and it cools off, pressure decreases, the core would contract a little bit and heat up, increasing the amount of energy and bringing it back into balance. So when we say it's in an equilibrium, it's in a state of balance that if it changes a little bit, it goes right back to where it is. So it could get a little bit hotter, could get a little bit cooler, but not enough where it's going to rapidly change. There are stars that are not stable, that are not completely in a state of equilibrium and actually pulsate. The stars physically will grow in size and shrink in size. Sun can get there at the end of its life. There are some, there are some instability areas that will occur, but not for the sun right now. So what do we know? Um, I, said, I said the surface temperature has been constant because we would, we would notice it. If the sun increased by 10% in temperature, a few hundred degrees, that would wipe out life on Earth. If it decreased that much, that would wipe out life. Either one. We're going to either freeze or boil. You know, what's your choice if the sun were to change by that much? If there were any major changes, we would not be here. The energy is transported out of the sun by a couple different methods. We have to get material from the interior to the exterior. All of the energy, all of the nuclear fusion that we talked about in the last section is going down on down in the core. The rest of the sun is a transport mechanism to get that energy from the core where it's being produced to the surface. So you've got a nuclear reactor down here going on. These are the layers on top of it that are transporting the energy by either convection in the outer layers or radiation in the inner layers. So there's several different ways. Conduction is the other method of radiation transport that does not occur in the sun. So you can transfer the energy by those two methods and the sun uses both of them. Very close in, radiation. So actual photons are traveling through this dense material. Once it gets out far enough, it's not able to do that. It gets too, the area actually gets too, uh, too good at absorbing the electrons and it absorbs uh, the particles and absorbs them as heat. And then particles start to rise to the surface in big convection currents. So when we look at a model of the interior, we can calculate. We can calculate a model. We've got the energy. This is just a slide of what we were showing the last time. But there's the core. The only place where the energy is being generated is down here in this very central portion of the core. The rest of it is the energy is transferred out. And again, very similar to what I talked about on the last slide, there's a region of radiation where the particles challenge, or, or where the particles slowly move out. And there's a region of convection where we see the convection currents that move the material, that actually move whole big pieces of material up to the surface. And the thing is that our model, when we get to the interior, when we look at the interior, has to match what we see on the surface. If we make a model that says this is going on here and we do all those calculations, then what I get at the surface has to be the same as what we see. Right? If I do all my calculations and I get something that doesn't show what we see, then something's off. Something is not matching up. So how can we make observations of the interior of the sun? Well, there's a couple ways. One of them is pulsations. So here's another picture of the sun. It doesn't look much like our sun. It's got nice red and blue squares, but the sun actually pulsates. 
We call this helioseismology. Seismology is the study of earthquakes on the Earth, seismic waves trans- transporting through. Well, waves transport through the sun as well. So the sun actually pulsates. And what we mean here is that red is moving away from us. It's red shifted. It's moving in. Blue is moving towards us. So we can actually see patterns of pulsation where the sun pulses in and out. The way those waves travel through tells us about the interior structure of the sun. Just like waves traveling through the earth, we can use earthquake waves to tell what the interior structure of the earth is like, even though we can't dig down there. We can use these waves in the sun to be able to determine what is going on in the sun, what the interior structure what is like. So it allows us to confirm those models of the interior. What is the interior of the sun like? Well, whatever models we make have to fit with the observations. What are the pulsations like that we see on the surface? If our models of the interior don't work, don't predict the same thing, then again, you have to make the modification to the models. And that is an ongoing process. That's something that we constantly have to do to explain the observations that we see. So the models are constantly being tweaked and refined to explain the observations. So that's one way we can see it, because we can see what's going on on the surface, how the sun is pulsating. We can't see anything down below the surface. It's, again, it's not like the outer layers where we could actually see things. We could see the corona. We could see the chromosphere. We can't see things when we're trying to look down in the core. So we have to use other indirect methods to be able to do them. The last method that we use is the neutrinos. Remember those neutrinos that, we, that were produced back in the very first stage of the proton-proton chain? They traveled, they zipped right through everything. That means they can travel from the interior of the sun out in just a fraction of a second. They can get to Earth in about eight minutes, just like light. So they don't take very long to get from the interior of the sun to Earth. The light, the energy that's being generated at the sun right now, that may not work its way out for 100,000 years. That's how dense the sun is. This heat that's being produced, the energy that's being produced right now is not something that we will see for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. The light that we're seeing right now was probably produced tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years ago. So we want to explain that, talk about the neutrinos. Because if we can detect them, they're a direct look. They were the first step, they were part of the first step of the proton-proton chain. They don't interact with anything. They're called weakly interacting. That means that they don't use gravity. They don't interact through gravity. They don't interact through the electromagnetic force, right? like ordinary matter does. So they could travel through the entire sun. It's produced at the core right now, they zip right out and eight minutes later, so the ones that were produced in the center of the sun eight and a half minutes ago are traveling, flying through us right now. They traveled through all of the sun, so they're going to travel right through you and right through the earth and just head out into space. They don't interact with anything, except on very, very rare occasions. So one in a billion, billion, and that probably is overestimating how many will interact. You know, one in a billion, billion, not very many, will interact with a chlorine atom. On a rare occasions, that will occur. What does that do? That converts chlorine. It interacts with the nucleus of the chlorine atom, converts it into argon. So it actually releases, it'll do that and release energy, which is this argon is radioactive and gives off light flash of light as it decays and can be detected. 
So it gives us, what it really gives us is if we can detect neutrinos, it gives us a direct look into the interior of the sun. We can see what's going on there right now. Not what was going on 100,000 years ago. So we can detect those neutrinos. But they're not easy to detect. Because most of them just blaze right through everything and head out into space. So this is what became the solar neutrino problem. We made detectors to try to detect these. I said they detect chlorine. Right, so you get a gigantic tank of cleaning fluid down here. There's a person to give you a, a sense of scale on that. And fill it with cleaning fluid which has chlorine in it. And then you have detectors around to detect those flashes of light from those occasional interactions. Well, you put them in mines because you want to shield. Why is it down below the surface? You want to shield it from any other effects. So you don't want cosmic rays, anything from space coming. You get to use the Earth to shield it. It can't shield from neutrinos. Neutrinos will go right through the Earth either direction, uh, just the same. So you shield it down there and you look for neutrinos. And the problem was that when they first built these a couple decades ago, is that if they were looking for 100 neutrinos every week to be detected, they were finding 30. That's a big difference. You're only finding one third the amount you were expecting. So you expected to find 100, you're only finding 30. That means something has to be wrong. Either your models of the solar interior were wrong or something else was wrong. So what were the possibilities? Well, the solar models could have been wrong. Could the sun be cooler at its core now than our models tell us? So cooler models would mean the nuclear reaction rates go slower, there'd be a lot less neutrinos, and that would explain it. But it was hard to reconcile with other models that worked. The helioseismology matched up and told us that the temperature was not that cold. Or the problem could have been that we didn't understand the neutrino. What we find out is that with a tiny, with a little bit of mass, if the neutrino is not completely massless, it can change its form. There are actually multiple types of neutrinos, and if it has a tiny mass, it can oscillate between these different flavors. No, they have no taste. That's particle physicist terminology for different types of things. They have different flavors. Not like they're strawberry, chocolate, and vanilla or anything, but there are different types of neutrinos. And the thing is, different, the, this experiment was set up to, de type, to detect the type that the sun produced. Well, this, it wouldn't detect these other two flavors. So we had to find out, were our models wrong or was the, was the neutrino what we didn't understand? And finishing up here with the solution, what did we find? Well, back in 1998, we first saw evidence that neutrinos could oscillate, that they might have a little bit of mass. First clear evidence was in 2001 at a neutrino observatory in Canada. And that's what we know now, is that the neutrinos do oscillate between these three flavors. That they will go, and if I, during that trip, during that eight and a half minutes it takes to get them from the sun to the earth, they're now evenly split between three different types. The type we're looking to detect and two other types that we're not detecting. So we should have been only detecting one third. So it really did confirm our models of the interior because now that we understood the neutrino properly, we were able to really be able to see that, yeah, our models were predict because we were only supposed to be getting one third of the amount. So finishing up here, uh, last section, again, we looked at some of the models and I showed you the equations of stellar structure uh, to be able to explain the interior. We used observations to help refine them, making sure the models fit with what we actually observe. 
And then I gave you the example of the solar neutrino problem, which really gave us two things. It confirmed the model of the sun and changed our understanding of the neutrino. So finished up everything there that you need for homework two and for the exam. I will start on chapter 17 next time before the lab on Thursday. And otherwise, just don't forget the homework due next time. And have a good rest of the day.